Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. to see is a person whose life is dominated by uncontrollable fear. This is the person who has perhaps some psychological phobia. Um, it might be of hard work. You're not listening yet. <laughs> but it has an uncontrollable phobia of spiders or snakes or something has an uncontrollable phobia of being out in open spaces or being confined to closed spaces. And um, you just see that person who's dominated by, by fear of things and their whole life is shaped by it and they're, um, they're just tossed around and they have just all kinds of nutty things going on because of these fears. Um, and it's sad to see. It's, it's hurtful to see. But one of the things that is spiritually painful to see is the person who has a distorted and twisted fear that God doesn't love them. It's the person who is convinced that while, yes, God is love, he can't be loved for me because my life is so messed up that I'm beyond loving. It's the person who's afraid that they have done so much so often that God has finally grown tired of them and has taken them out of the grace bin and has thrown them away. And now they are afraid to even talk to God, fearful that the only thing he has in mind for them is some kind of punishment and some kind of pain. The person who has a twisted, distorted fear of God is so often the person whose life has been robbed of all joy and has now arrived at the point of just trying to get through to the end without being noticed by the Father in heaven. It's painful to see that. And that's why we love scriptures like 1 John, where he says, perfect love casts out fear. One, God's perfect love for us takes care of that fear problem because God's perfect love for us sends Christ to die for us. Our sins are forgiven. We are made new. We are made whole. We are made beautiful in God's sight. And by the power of his grace now, we enter into his presence joyfully. And because the perfection of God's love for us, the fear is cast out. But then the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, and we come to know the love and the glory, the grace of God, and that casts out the fear. And so now we come together with God, not on the basis of fear, but on the basis of love. And it's a glorious truth of the gospel. And it will absolutely transform your life when you come to understand the way God's love casts out all fear. And that's why it's sort of difficult to read our passage this morning. Because Peter, after he says, I want you to set your hope on grace. We saw that two weeks ago. And I want you to conduct your lives or, or to, to be holy in all your conduct. Saw that last week. 
So I want grace in your life, and I want holiness in your life. And actually, it's the holiness by the grace of God and the grace of God that leads to holiness in your life. So he says, I want you to set your hope on grace, and I want you to be holy in your conduct. And then he says that third imperative. There's only three imperatives in this, in this paragraph. And the third one, he says, and conduct your life in fear. Live in fear. Folks, it was a happy sermon when I got to preach on live in the hope of grace. I mean, you, you have no idea how you anticipate a sermon like that, you know, where you're going to spend, well, this morning, 40 minutes. Okay. We're going to spend our time together this morning, and we're going to talk about the grace of God, the majestic, glorious grace of God poured into the undeserving lives of sinners, transforming us, remaking us, renewing us, and all the beauty and the wonder of Christ through whom that grace comes. And I'm telling you, when, when you've got a passage of Scripture like that and the theme is living in the hope of grace, you really anticipate that sermon all week long. And when you get to it and you preach it and you're done with it, you know what you want to do? You want to preach it again. So I think I will. <laughs> Just not now. But even that sermon on, you know, to be holy. Now, you see, the, the grace sermon, everybody's sort of with you. you know, this, this is preacher talk going on right now. But you know when you're going to preach on grace, everybody's there. They want the grace. They love the grace. It's magnificent grace. Give me the grace. Grace, 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 grace. Oh, it's amazing grace. Get the bagpipes out. We're, we're ready to go now with grace. And so when you're preaching on grace, people are really with you. Let's talk about grace. And then you talk about holiness, and people are with you. They're with you a little bit, but they forgive you because they know you have to say that, that kind of thing. But you get ready to preach a, a sermon on holiness, and you know folks are going to misunderstand some parts of it and think that it's actually some kind of works righteousness, but you get to talk about grace again. And so you talk about holiness and the holiness of God and the, and the magnificent holiness of the, of the Son and the Holy Spirit coming into your life. You've got all this holy stuff going on, and, 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 and you get to preach on sanctification. And, and sanctification, even if you don't understand it, it's a, it's a neat-sounding word. And so even though there's a little bit of resistance to the notion of living a holy life, that you, you still like to hear it, you know. And when you know that sermon's coming along, you spend the week and you know you, that, that somehow you're going to bring the people with you because you're going to arrive at a life of holiness by pointing to the holiness of God. Now, here's the problem. I want to talk about fear of God this morning. And there's something about us that just doesn't want it. We just don't want the fear of God, largely because we already know the damaging effects of what I just called a twisted, distorted fear of God. See, some of you may have been raised in religious traditions in which the fear of God was drummed into, you know, beaten into you, and in which you came to understand that God is to be feared because God is out to get you, and that the least little slip-up and God is coming after you. You thought the fear of God was about uh, knowing that God had a better intelligence system than the NSA and that he really was listening in on all your conversations and that he was just looking for some reason, some excuse that he could nail you to the wall. And that kind of fear of God, you sort of suspect, is, is dysfunctional. It leads to a kind of paralysis. If I were going to illustrate it, I would go to the, uh, the parable that Jesus told about the stewards who were brought in, the servants. The master was getting ready to go on a trip, and so he brought his servants in and gave them each a sum of money. 
Uh, he told this parable, I, I believe, several times, maybe in, in different versions, but it, it goes basically like this. He gave them each a sum of money, then he went off on his trip. And the one guy, uh, he went out and invested his money. The other guy, he invested his money. The other guy, he just sort of buried it in the ground. The master came back. He called the servants in. And he said, look, guys, what have you done with the money I gave you? First guy said, I doubled it. I went out. I invested it. I worked it. I doubled it, and the master says, great job. Enter into the jaw of your master. Okay, great. And then the second guy comes up, and the master says, well, what did you do with the money I gave you? And he says, I doubled it. It wasn't as much as his, but I doubled it. On a percentage basis, we're doing pretty good here. And of course, past performance is no prediction of future results, but I think we're in a good shape here, master. Good job, servant. Well done. Enter into the jaw of your master. Brings in the third servant. He says, what have you done with the money I gave you? He says, look, Master, I knew that uh, things were tough. I knew all about the, the economy, and I knew that you were the kind of guy who had to uh, reap where you hadn't sown any seed. I, I knew that, that, that it was just hard for you. And I also knew that you were severe. And so I put the two together that, you know, I might lose this, and you need it. And not only that, you're severe. You're hard to get along with it. And the Scripture says, in the Gospel, it says, the, the servant said, and Master, I was afraid. I was afraid. So I went out and I buried it. Wrapped it in a napkin, buried it. Dug it up just this morning. Here it is. Dusted off as good as new. And what did the Master say? He said, you wicked servant. Why? Because he had allowed fear to paralyze him. Because he had allowed an acknowledgement of the seriousness of the situation with the character of the master to paralyze him into inaction. I suspect that if he had come before the master and he said, you know, those other guys seem pretty smart to me. I invested my money in the same fund they did. Didn't do quite as well. Here's your, here's your talent back. Here's your money back. It's just as much as it was before. But uh, I tried. I think the master would have said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But because you did nothing, you knew times were hard. You did nothing with it. And then he says, I'll take what you have, give it to somebody who knows how to use it. See, he was afraid. And his fear paralyzed him into inaction. And for many people, that's, that's their concept of the fear of God. It is a fear of an angry God who is out to get them, and they are paralyzed into inaction, and they're afraid to move left, they're afraid to move right, up or back. They just sit there standing still, hoping to get through worship services and enough Bible studies that when they die, they can sneak into heaven unnoticed because, after all, they're afraid that God might come after them. But Peter says, you know, you call upon the Father who is an impartial judge. And therefore, conduct your lives in fear, in fear. We need to understand what the Bible means by the fear of God. If we were to go to the Old Testament, you would, you would look there and you would see that whenever um, the, the phrase, those who fear God is used, you could equally say, those who love God. 
And the reason for that is the only people who fear God in the proper biblical sense, who really know why to fear God, are those who love him. Those who really understand or have some semblance of understanding of the holiness and the character and the righteousness of God. In the Old Testament, to fear God was to love him and to acknowledge him. To fear God was to understand who he is in his righteousness. To fear God was to understand that he is sovereign, we are not, that he has the right to command, we do not, and that he has the right to expect obedience, and we owe it to him. To fear God was to understand who God really is. The example I think of is Abraham. You remember Abraham had his son Isaac. For years and years he had not had a, had a son, thought he'd have to use uh, uh, one of his uh, uh, employees and just sort of designate the money in the, in the household to him. Uh, but God promised him a son, and, and against all hope, a son was born. Isaac was born to Abraham. And so now Abraham, who uh, really towards the end of his life, is, he has a son. Things look like they're set up. He's ready to go. He's got an heir. The promise of God has been fulfilled. And the voice of God comes to him and says, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, your son, your only son. I want you to take him up to the mountain. I want there, I want you to sacrifice him. Now, if you're Abraham, you're thinking, what is this? What is this? I know that this God I have been worshiping and following does not accept human sacrifice. And I know that this God promised me an heir, and Isaac is the heir, and he's the one from all the nations of the world to be blessed. You know, all those kinds of things. I, this just doesn't make any sense at all. And so what Abraham did was he took Isaac, his son, and he took him to the mountain. He prepared him for a sacrifice, bound him, piled the, the, the wood around him, drew the knife, and was about to slay his son, to sacrifice his son in obedience to God. And the voice of God came to him and said, Hang on there, Abraham. Here's the exact quote. Now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you fear God. Not because you huddled in the corner of your tent, paralyzed into inaction, but because you got up and did what I told you to do in order to be found obedient to my will. Now I know you fear God. Because you took what was dearest and most precious to you and you trusted me with it. Now I know you fear God because you put your whole future in my hands and you would rather have pleased me than pleased anyone else. Now I know that you fear God. See, a lot of you are afraid of the world. I know you are. You're afraid of what the world is going to think of you. You're afraid that the world isn't going to like you. You're afraid the world will make fun of how you dress or how you talk. You're afraid the world is going to single you out for some kind of ridicule. You are afraid of the world, and it happens from day one when we come into this earth. It, it, it happens from the very beginning. We are so afraid of the world around us and what others think. Folks, be afraid of what God thinks. Be fearful of God's opinion of your life because your friends one day will be gone. 
You ever think about this? One day, all the people that you cared, you know, oh, what are they going to think about me? They're going to move away. They're going to be gone. You'll never see them again. But what God thinks of you is eternal. So Abraham feared God because he allowed his whole life to be shaped by the Word of God, the commandment of God, and who God is. So with that sort of as they run into this, I want for us to turn back to the Scripture. Peter gives us two reasons to fear God. Two reasons. In verse 17, he says, And if you call on him as Father, and you do, so we might as well just have said, since you call on him as Father, if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear during your time in exile. Because you call on God as an impartial judge. First, he is a judge of our lives, and he alone has the right to judge our lives. He has the right to take our lives and measure it up to his standard of righteousness. But beyond that, I mean, that, that's important enough, but beyond that, he is an impartial judge. That means he does not play favorites. It's not as though he has a rules for everybody else, but you get a pass. It's not as though he has a design for human life, but somehow we get a get-out-of-jail-free card or someplace else, and, and uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. He is an impartial judge. The sin of your life offended God before you became a Christian. The sin of your life was offensive to God when you violated his standard of righteousness and holiness, when you violated his standard of conduct, when you violated his standard of how you relate, relate to people, when you violated God's will for your life before you became a Christian, that was offensive to God. Sin offended God back then. Folks, sin offends God today. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. Your sin offends God still. It's still serious business with God. It is still a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Your sin still offends him. He is an impartial judge. And so fear God. Live in fear of God. Now understand that fear of God, when you really know the grace of God, doesn't drive you away to, from God. It drives you to God. Think of it this way. When Jesus was crucified, there were two thieves, uh, each crucified on either side of him, and the one thief started to mock Jesus. He said, Jesus, you know, if, if you're the Son of God, go ahead, come on down, get a ladder, come up here and get me down too. Jesus, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and us. Started mocking Jesus, making fun of Jesus, about to die, and yet the only thing he could do was make fun of the Son of God. That's the one thief. The other thief the, on the other side of him turns to the first and says, wait a minute, buddy. And this is, this is the phrase. Do you not fear God? That's what he said. He says, do you not fear God? Aren't you letting your life be shaped, defined, and molded by the fact that there's a God who's an impartial judge for whom sin is always an offense? Don't you fear God? And then he says something incredibly interesting. This thief who does fear God, he does not say to Jesus, Jesus, I promise to do better for the rest of my life. 
From now on, Jesus, I will not steal anymore. Till the day I die, Jesus, I'm pretty sure I'm going to clean up my act. I won't sin anymore. He doesn't say that. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He had a fear of God that drove him to the foot of the cross, literally, I guess. He had a fear of God that drove him to Jesus. He had a fear of God that drove him to faith trust. He had a fear of God that drove him to rely on the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. See, the fear of God, because he has an impartial judge, does not drive us away from God when we know him. It drives us away from sin to God. That's what the fear of God is designed to do. If you experience a fear of God that drives you away from God, you haven't gotten the whole story yet. You don't have it down yet. So the first thing Peter says, he says, because you call upon God, he's a righteous judge, he's an impartial judge. Because of that, conduct your lives, live with fear throughout the time of your exile. Then in verse 18, he says, knowing... All right, live in fear of God, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You were bought out from this idiotic, vain, pointless, useless existence that everybody told you was worthwhile. So that's the way we go through life most of our lives. I think I mentioned it the other day. We, we just look around, what is he doing? I'll do that. You know, what have we always done? We'll just do that. Vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. And Peter says, live in the fear of God because you know, don't you, that God paid the price of this futility and this sin. He paid the ransom. He paid the price so that you could be brought out of the futility of your life, if you will, out of the paralysis of your life. That's why in the book of Hebrews, Uh, We're taught that Jesus came that he might deliver us because we are those who are in the bondage of fear to death. We fear death. We're in bondage to the fear of death. It paralyzes us. Jesus died to take away that bondage of fear, but yet we're called to the fear of God. You see, there's a fear that's based on um, uh, sensing our sinfulness and wanting to run away from God because we know what, what our sin deserves. And there's a fear that says, knowing who God is, I run away from the sin and I run to God. That's the fear of God that we live in. So he says, knowing that you were ransomed, bought back from the futile ways of your forefathers and not with perishable things such as silver or gold, these things perish. Takes a long time sometimes, but they perish. But you were bought with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, knowing that God did not withhold the Prince of Heaven, the King of Kings, knowing that God did not withhold the greatest treasure of eternity but sent him to earth to die in our place, knowing that the precious blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb, was was, was shed for you to buy you out out of futility. Now fear God. You see, love and fear are not contradictory. Uh, Let me try this illustration on you. You know, guys, the the way it was when they, they put your newborn in your arms the first time, 
Any of you remember that? I don't know. For the ladies, I think you get nine months to build up a maternal instinct. You know, by the time it arrives, you, you know, you're just sort of rolling. For us, it's, it's all theory. It's nothing but theory. Until they take this little guy and they put him in your arms and you look at him and suddenly you realize how much you love him. And you realize there's nothing you wouldn't do for him. You realize that you want the very best for him and you love this little guy so much, it is painful, it hurts. The next thing is you're scared to death because you're afraid you're going to hurt him. You're afraid you're going to fall short. And you have a fear that when he needs you, you won't be there. And the more you love him, the more that fear is there. Now, it doesn't paralyze you. It motivates you. Love and fear are not contradictory when they are understood properly. That's the sense in which Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, conduct your lives in fear. Conduct your lives with that concern that you would live in such a way that you would deny the blood of Christ or that you would do anything that, that would act as if the grace of God had never happened. Live in a fear of God that you would slip back into the old futility and others would not hear the message of grace that God has brought to you. Live in that kind of fear. Live in a fear that your love would not be expressed the way it ought to be. Live in a fear of God. Because Jesus, this is verse 20, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, that is, before you were ever created, born. He was, he was known before the foundation, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So live your life in, in fear and live your life in the, in the conduct of fear. Now, let me, let me see if I can wrap this together the last three weeks together. There's three imperatives in this paragraph and a lot of participles, circumstantial participles that tell you how they apply. Uh, the professor in me wants to acknowledge that the participle was gaining an imperatival force during the latter days of the Koine period, but I lost you on that one, so come back. Three imperatives. Set your hope fully on grace. Be holy and live in fear. Now, if you take any one of those alone, you don't have the full story. If you want just the grace, but you don't want the holiness and you don't want the fear of God, you, you, what you're doing is you're going to cheapen grace. You're going to make it just a slick way to get out from under a, a problem you've got and and you're going to just decide that you can work the system and I'll take the grace, but don't give me that holiness stuff. If all you want is the grace, you'll start to use grace as a way to keep God at a distance. Don't bother me, God. I got that grace thing going. Don't tell me about sin, God. I got grace. And you'll start doing nutty things like sinning so that grace can abound. And if you take holiness without the other two, then you, you'll find yourself wrapped up in legalistic religion where you're trying to perform and, and do and perform and do and keep the law and have works righteousness, and, and it'll just lead you to be frustrated and absolutely defeated in your Christian life. That's why you start with grace, and the grace leads to the holiness. It's by the grace of God that we can live a holy life. 
But folks, if you, all you hear is live in the fear of God and that's all you hear, you just, you just slice it that thinly, then you're going to live in frustration and paralysis. And you're going to think that God's out to get you. You know, just at least a little slip up and he's going to nail you. Take them all together. By the grace of God, we can fear him. Isn't that a remarkable thing? By the grace of God, you can actually know the Father as an impartial judge. By the grace of God, you can know the ransom that was paid in Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, you can know how majestic in his sovereign uh, grace God is, and you can love him and you can fear him because of God's grace. You can fear him. So these three go together. You've got to keep them together. But by hope for this morning, because we've, we've spent time talking about grace and, and hope in grace and spent time talking about living a life of holiness, that this morning we've spent our time and you'll have a keen desire to fear God. Because this kind of fearing of God is not an emotion. It is a choice you make every day. It's not an emotion that comes on you, you know, the, the heart beats faster and you just sort of have this, this, this moment, but rather the fear of God here is a choice that you make every day, that you get up and you say, in the fear of God, I'm going to live a life of holiness by his grace. And then you start to look a lot more like the person you ought to be in Christ. And so the grace of God comes to us, bringing us to holiness so that we can live victoriously in the fear of God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, there are so many things in Scripture that are hard for us to understand, but there are more things in Scripture that are easy to understand but hard to apply. And sometimes we come to a passage like this, Father, and we want to be very selective and and what it means. We want to be very selective in, in how it works out in our lives. But Father, I'm praying this morning that your Holy Spirit would give us hearts that from the very foundation want to love you and fear you in the way that you've designed for us. And Father, that we would not turn away from the majestic overwhelming, gracious truth that when our fear drives us away from sin to your throne, there we find grace and help and mercy. Thank you, Father. For the person here this morning who has been living in twisted fear, I pray you'd show them Christ. Give them that, that measure of grace that would lead to confession of faith. And Father, so work in our midst that we would be found as a people obedient and pleasing to you. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing in the fear of God. We'll worship the King.